0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler.
1: Today, we're joined by UCLA law professor Adam Winkler to chat about the recently finished Supreme Court term, the happenings both on and off the bench. So let's jump right in because uh, there's a lot to cover. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. So uh, let's start off with a, a broad question here for you, Adam. Um, what's your impression of the term that just finished on June 30th?
2: Well, this was another blockbuster term for the Supreme Court. Remember, last term, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, rewrote significant administrative law doctrines, and expanded religious freedom and Second Amendment rights. And sometimes after the court has a blockbuster term, the next term is pretty quiet. The court takes smaller cases, less uh, controversial, high-profile matters. But that was not the case this year. We had major decisions on a variety of areas of really important American law, affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, curtailing agency power, um, gay rights and uh, free expression. Uh, So we had a lot of big, big cases this year, which was kind of surprising in and of itself.
0: Hmm. Yes, I want to talk about um, that affirmative action case that you mentioned. Um, In a handful of cases, this term, conservative groups and Republican-led states sought to interject this kind of colorblind interpretation of the Constitution and federal law. The idea, though, was rejected in a case involving voting rights and another challenge to a decades-old law meant to help Native families. But, you know, as we know, it won out in the affirmative action cases. Do you have an idea what made the difference in those cases? Why a colorblind Constitution uh, or reading a federal law won out in one but not the other two?
2: Well, it's hard to know exactly, but it does seem like um, uh, the affirmative action case came in an area where conservatives have been pushing for the elimination of racial considerations for decades. And um, uh, this was a case uh, in, in which uh, finally there was enough of a conservative majority on the Supreme Court to strike down affirmative action in higher education. It, to be honest, the voting rights case where the court uh, allowed um, a consideration of race, uh, at least in trying to find um, a solution to uh, racially discriminatory redistricting. That was kind of a surprise. Justice John, Chief Justice John Roberts had been a long opponent of v- voting rights protections uh, f- for minorities or what he thinks of as special voting rights protections for minorities. Um, but nonetheless, the court upheld that key provision of the Voting Rights Act. With regards to the Native American case, it's important to note that the court just sidestepped the issue uh, of whether... Right. Uh, Indian child custody preferences uh, amount to race discrimination and it's very possible that issue could return to the court in the coming years.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about both of those cases, both the Voting Rights Act um, cases and the Native Adoption case. Um, you know, the court rejected, you know, sweeping changes to law there. Um, and, you know, they were really considered, I think a lot of liberals saw them as, as big victories. And, you know, many people we talked to were, you know, surprised by these decisions. But how should we be thinking about those kind of victories? And what does it tell us about the current court?
2: Well, uh, it, it sort of defines what counts as a liberal victory today you know um uh, even as little as uh, as 5 8 years ago a liberal victory was something like Obergefell where the court expanded rights for Uh, same-sex couples under the Constitution, something that liberal constitutional um, scholars and activists were saw as a big achievement. Today, liberal victories are really just the defeat of extreme conservative positions that would radically rewrite the law. So with regards to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, that was a liberal victory basically just because the court maintained the current law. Uh, that section Two was a viable tool for considering Voting rights act uh, violations, uh, whereas the the argument that was being made in that case would have completely eliminated it um, it 's a victory in Holland v Braquin, the Native American uh, Indian Child Welfare Act case that the court declined to even consider whether it was race discrimination. So today the liberals win on the Supreme Court, not when they expand the rights that liberals want, but when the conservative court rejects an extreme conservative provision that would have radically rewritten the law.
0: Right. Yeah. I was sort of wondering if it tells us not only something about kind of the kinds of victories that liberals can expect to get in a court that's dominated by conservatives, but also the kinds of cases that the justices are accepting. Do you see those as different um, from just a few terms ago?
2: Well, it is the case that we're seeing that the strong 6-3 conservative majority has uh, motivated activists and lawyers to bring cases to the Supreme Court that 10 or 15 years ago would have been unimaginable. Um, I think a good example is the case Moore versus Harper. This is the case on the independent state legislature theory where conservative activists put forward a view of the Constitution that was contrary to 200 years of steady, consistent constitutional practice, whereby state Supreme Courts were the final authority and had the ability to review the constitutionality under a state constitution, of uh, election laws adopted by the legislature. Uh, It's hard to imagine that this uh, argument brought to the court in this case, that the state courts had no role to play whatsoever in applying the state constitution would have ever been brought to the Supreme Court. So these days, a, a, a victory for the liberal justices is when one of these extreme theories gets rejected.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Moore versus Harper, because, um, you know, that was a decision that the Chief Justice um, was able to, it seemed like, pull Justice Brett Kavanaugh over to his side on, you know, along with the liberal wing, and not only um, get, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, but also uh, get Justice Barrett to join them. Um, you know, and we saw several rulings from the, conservative fifth circuit overruled this term as well and so some people have said that that shows that maybe trump's appointees to the court are more moderate than people initially thought and you know or at least aren't as conservative as members of the fifth circuit and i was just wondering what you think about that
2: Well, it is possible that they're slightly more moderate. I mean, it's hard to look at a court that has overturned Roe vs. Wade, that's greatly expanded gun rights, that's greatly expanded religious freedom rights, and created for the first time in American history um, First Amendment exceptions to public accommodation laws um, has outlawed affirmative action in higher education as a moderate court. It's certainly true that the Fifth Circuit does seem to be more conservative and uh, seems to be more likely to be overturned these days by the Supreme Court than even the Ninth Circuit. Um, but I, I don't think that would should lead us to think that the court today is a moderate court. Um, there's a few moderate rulings that come from it. But the overwhelming trend on the biggest, most important issues is clearly uh, conservative.
1: Right. And I, you know, chatted with some folks who said, you know, with the Fifth Circuit's, you know, kind of low win rate at the court, that that means that, you know, the Fifth Circuit maybe is willing to push the envelope a little bit more than the Supreme Court does. But, you know, that's still significant in that these sort of, you know, arguments that many people on the left see as extreme are still kind of being fine-tuned and, you know, presented at the court and that the court is, you know, hearing, you know, arguments on positions that, you know, five to 10 years ago just would have been viewed as kind of off the wall. Yeah,
2: I think that's I think that's right. I mean, we are seeing arguments made before the Supreme Court that we would have never seen before. Uh, And it's certainly the case that uh, a lot of litigants have been inspired by the three Trump appointees to the Supreme Court to start. Uh, trying to reimagine the law in a variety of different ways. And truth be told, they've been remarkably successful. Uh, It's hard to imagine a Supreme Court that in 12 months has done so much to change fundamental areas of law from higher education admissions to Roe v. Wade to gun rights to administrative agency powers and religious rights. I think the court surprised some people by rejecting some arguments in some of the voting rights cases earlier in the term. But by the end of the term, it had become clear that more fundamental changes to American law have been made in the last 12 months than we've seen at probably any time in the Supreme Court's history.
0: So let's talk about another big case um, that went the way of conservatives. This is another one that we got late in the term. And here the court said that the Biden administration had overstepped its executive authority when it tried to cancel hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan debt. And in doing so, it used this uh, major questions doctrine Wondering if you could talk to us about how the conservative majority has increasingly used this doctrine in the past few terms, and what can we expect the effects to be on Congress, the president, and even the courts? Well, we've
2: seen a really considerable revision of the law pertaining to deference to administrative agencies. The traditional rule has been for several decades that when an administrative agency acts in the event of an ambiguous uh, congressional statute, that the courts will defer to that agency because of its expertise, so long as that agency determination is a reasonable interpretation of the underlying law. Um, In recent years, we've seen uh, the rise of this major questions doctrine. And uh, the court has sort of crafted out of thin air uh, a doctrine that says, Well, uh, agency regulations will not be deferred to, even if they're, quote unquote, reasonable in terms of their interpretation of an ambiguous statute, if those regulations have a, a very large political or economic significance. And if they have that kind of significance, the court says that Congress has to be explicit and address that underlying issue. What Biden versus Nebraska does, the student loan forgiveness case, is kind of supersized the major questions doctrine. The underlying law passed by Congress here, the HEROES Act, uh, adopted after 9 11, explicitly authorizes the Secretary of Education to, quote, waive or modify end quote, provisions of student financial assistance programs in cases of national emergency. And uh, uh, the Trump administration had declared COVID a national emergency, and the court doesn't really seem to take issue with that. Instead, the court says, well, despite the statute that seems to be directly on point, Um, that it's too big an issue for the agency to be able to handle um, without explicit congressional authorization. I think a lot of people are scratching their heads because it looks like there is explicit congressional uh, authorization for this move. So it suggests that the court is going to second-guess administrative agency determinations even when they're within the scope of a statute.
1: I wanted to ask you about the other major part of the student loan case here um, at issue. In this case, was there was really a, a big standing question here, um, and whether the states had standing to bring their case. You know, we know that uh, the court, you know, rejected the case that was brought by the student loan borrowers um, on standing, saying that they hadn't, you know, shown that they would suffer any injury. But on the states' case, you know, really here the court, you know, accepted that they had suffered some sort of injury, and in dissenting from the Uh, Court student loan decision. You know, Justice Kagan suggested that the majority had violated the Constitution by exercising authority that it didn't have um, by deciding a case that never should have been let into court to begin with. Um, You know, Kagan said that the court's decision blows through a constitutional guardrail intended to keep courts uh, acting like courts. And I'm just wondering do you think she's right? And what impact do you think this decision will have when it comes to standing on future cases?
2: Well, that's a really great question, and it really remains to be seen. I mean, what was weird here is that Nebraska couldn't claim any injury to the state directly, and Missouri as well, and the other states involved, that they uh, pointed to uh, organizations in the state that had to administer these student loans. And in, in the Missouri case, for instance, the organization involved was not directly controlled by the state and itself came out and suggested that they were in support of the student loan forgiveness plan and would might actually make more money if the student loan forgiveness plan uh, went through. Um, But the court sort of brushed through those issues so that it could rule on this underlying case. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the future because standing doesn't necessarily benefit either liberals or conservatives. It just depends on the particular case. And for many years, it was liberals who were pushing the court to expand its standing doctrine so that the court could hear more controversies that didn't fit within the narrow confines of traditional standing doctrine. So maybe what we're seeing now is conservatives agree that standing can be too limiting of the court uh, in how it was traditionally understood Um, And uh, we may see uh, a weakening of standing doctrine across the board if we keep getting more cases like this where standing seems to be very questionable, at least whether the underlying uh, party had any valid concerns or valid dispute or would be harmed by the underlying issue. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Lydia, I thought it was interesting that you pulled that quote from Justice Kagan where she talks about um, these guardrails to keep a court acting like a court because that really mimics um, some some talks that she gave last summer uh, when, you know, there's big questions about the court's legitimacy uh, came up. And there was this really robust talk between the justices about what counted as, you know, possible criticism of the court and calling out its legitimacy. And she used that phrase, you know, when the court acts like a court, you can criticize the court, but it's not going to its legitimacy. But when you, you know, when the court stops acting like a court, then that's when people rightly do really question whether or not, you know, it's taking on the role that it was intended. So I thought um, her language there really stuck out to me. I agree. Although I think
2: at the end of the day, The general public is not going to judge the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the Supreme Court on the basis of standing and the basis of who it allows in the court. You know, there's some insider people like law professors and uh, journalists who cover the Supreme Court that might focus on such things. But I think the general public is really focused on the outcomes of the Supreme Court. Uh, And this was a term where it seemed like the court was willing to manipulate standing as much as possible to take certain cases. The student loan forgiveness case is a good example. Some real questions about the underlying facts uh, behind uh, 303 Creative, the gay rights free speech case, whether that would have affected standing or not, not clear. Uh, but uh, the court seems to blow by some of these factual questions so that it can rule on these underlying issues. And I think what really matters to people, such as the 43 million people who were uh, going to face student loan forgiveness or going to get student loan forgiveness as a result of Biden's plan, is that the, the loan forgiveness got canceled.
0: You know, we're talking about some really big issues here, but... Um... Are you, I think we have to stop here and pause. Are you saying that the world isn't made up exclusively of journalists and law professors?
2: Well, I mean, the people who count are the journalists and law professors.
1: Well, you know, I wanted to um, to talk about kind of um, the decisions, you know, I think it was surprising to see, or at least for me, it was surprising to see the chief justice, um, you know, give himself kind of all of the big rulings this term, affirmative action, voting rights, student loan relief. I mean, he wrote all of these himself. Is there a message he's trying to send here in doing that? And do you think he was effective, you know, specifically when we when we're thinking about these legitimacy issues and, you know, legitimacy of the court, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts has been pretty quiet about all of this. And so I'm just wondering if there's anything we can read from the fact that he wrote all of the biggest decisions this term.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit hard to know, but he certainly did keep for himself many of the most important decisions uh, of the term. And in a couple of cases departed from his more conservative colleagues in refusing to adopt some of these extreme positions, like in the voting rights cases that we talked about. You know, some people have suggested that maybe Roberts learned a lesson last term when he allowed Justice uh, Thomas to write the Second Amendment case, and Thomas Wrote a decision that has led to over thirty laws, gun laws, being struck down in the year since, and has you know made it really hard to justify modern twentieth century or twenty first century gun laws uh, from constitutional scrutiny. He may have been bur- felt burned a little bit by uh, Alito's very harsh tone in his. Um, decision in the Dobbs case, overturning uh, Roe versus Wade. So maybe he thought the best way uh, for him to maintain some control is for him to write the opinions. And I think we've seen the results of that in some of these cases. In the affirmative action case, for instance, I imagine that opinion, uh, even though it rejects the use of race in admissions, would have been much uh, harder for universities to uh, function with had Justice Thomas written the opinion. One thing that Chief Justice Roberts says is that universities, of course, can consider the racial experience of applicants if it's talked about in their essays and whatnot. And he sort of crafts an opening that universities are just going to run through uh, en masse to continue to try to keep a diverse, racially diverse student body. Whereas maybe if Justice Thomas wrote that opinion, he would have really had a much more strong insistence on universities being completely blind to the use uh, of race. But whether that's the issue or not, uh, it's clear that Roberts has had a very roller coaster term. He wants to preserve the integrity of the court. He said that was his number one goal when he was uh, in his uh, confirmation hearings uh, back in, I guess it was 2005, a long time ago now. And yet the institutional legitimacy of the court continues to suffer. Um, not only the court's rulings pushing the court strong in a direction that clearly evokes the specter of judicial activism. But these ethics scandals have really become a problem as well. Uh, Roberts seems to give voice to this concern that we need to protect the image of the judiciary uh, in uh, on the last court's final day in the uh, Biden student loan case where he said, you know, the dissenters are just being too aggressive, saying that the majority was acting, quote, beyond the proper role of the judiciary. That's somewhat ironic coming from Chief Justice John Roberts. You can understand his concern, but uh, some of us might remember his dissent in the Obergefell case, where he suggested exactly the same, that protecting same-sex marriage was the court going well beyond the proper role of the judiciary.
0: Right. So we do want to talk about those ethics um, concerns and other things that happened off the bench, but I would feel remiss if we did not talk about 303 Creative. This was a redo of a previous Supreme Court case involving whether business owners could refuse to provide custom products for same-sex weddings. The court this term, though, only dealt with the case as a free speech case and did not address sort of the religious freedom aspect of it. Um, Of course, it's always there in the background, um, given that you know the website designer here says that that it violates um, her religious beliefs. But I'm wondering if you think that that impacted the ruling and if it will impact its effect going forward.
2: Well, it's, uh, it re- really remains to be seen. I mean, it was an odd case um, uh, based on a lot of hypotheticals, right? The challenger had never made a wedding website for anyone. The challenger had never been asked to create anything expressive by a same-sex couple. But uh, nonetheless, the court uh, potentially limited the scope of its ruling by insisting that the problem here was – Uh, the expressive nature of the website that was being created. And it may be that uh, the court will not allow broader exemptions to anti-discrimination law where there's no expressive element. However, there's two reasons to be skeptical of that outcome. Number one, there's a lot of things that can be seen to be expressive. Um, Mm -hmm. Creating flower floral arrangements. A caterer say, look, I don't want to really provide a menu. Uh, That's part of my self-expression and my artistic uh, uh, ability. Could an interior designer say, what I do is expressive? Could a lawyer say, hey, I write a complaint that reflects my own expression, not just the client's problem. So uh, expressive itself is not much of a limitation. And number two, the reason why uh, expressive activity was exempted or uh, allowed to create an exemption from uh, these anti-discrimination laws is because it's protected by the First Amendment. But religious freedom is equally protected by the First Amendment. And if one has a religious objection to providing services to Um, same-sex couples or to LGBT people, presumably that's protected in the same way that First Amendment uh, expressive activity is protected. And if so, then this ruling will give and open up uh, uh, the ability for uh, discrimination against LGBT people in areas far beyond just those that can be considered expressive. I think the one certainty is that we're going to have years of litigation going forward Mm -hmm. on what counts as expressive activity or what is a valid First Amendment uh, exemption or immunity from anti-discrimination laws.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that—that that it really seems like with this decision that the court is opening itself up to see a lot more challenges, um, you know, over what is an expressive service and what's not. But I, I, you know, I wanted to to look at the court as as a, a you know this term as a whole. Um, it was unanimous in nearly half of its cases this term, um, though in at least. One case, um, you know, the Sackett case dealing with the regulation of clean water um, was more of a 5-4 ruling. Are looking uh, at vote counts and breakdowns a good way to analyze the term, do you think?
2: Well, I think it is helpful in many ways to have a broader vision of all the cases that are decided. This is something that the retired Justice Stephen Breyer was always emphasizing, is that we end up focusing on a handful of cases that are decided every term and can miss some of the bigger general patterns. And in general, the court is um, unanimous or largely close to unanimous in most cases that it hears. And that does tell us something important about the court. However, I do think most people, the cases that most people really care about, that's where we see the divide in the court. The high-profile controversial issues like affirmative action and gay rights and student debt loan forgiveness. And here the court is really not unanimous and the divides in the court are really, really significant. So I do think that the numbers can help to get a sense of how the court works, but it's clear that on these big high-profile issues, The court's divisions are as deep and as profound as ever.
0: So some of the biggest stories that we got this term about the Supreme Court were about the justices' behaviors off the court, specifically with regard to ethics. Why is the public seemingly more interested in what the justices are doing these days? Well, the
2: public may be more interested in what the Supreme Court is doing, in part because of the rulings that are coming from the Supreme Court. Um, We have a court that is very activist, that's rewriting vast areas of law. And if you're a conservative, you think that's great, perhaps because you're getting the outcomes you want from the Supreme Court. Um, But if you're a liberal or a moderate, you may be very disappointed and that you think that the court should have a sense of, historical continuity, despite who gets appointed to the Supreme Court. What we've seen is is that in the Trump administration, there was a very concerted effort to manipulate the membership of the Supreme Court. McConnell refused to consider President Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court on a theory that, oh, in a presidential election, the Senate should wait till after the election. And then, what was it, three weeks before the 2020 election, uh, the Senate confirmed Amy Coney Barrett, rejecting its own previous theory, the conservative's theory about when we can appoint justices. And so I think that really highlighted for many people that, uh, it, it, that there is a, there's a lot of gamesmanship going on with the Supreme Court. And that's taken it more out of the realm of being a court and more seen to be a political football. And as a result, people are really paying attention to what's happening in the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah. um, On a totally different note here, you know, I want to mention that, you know, this was a term where we had a new justice on the bench, you know, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And the impression across the board seems to be that she entered her first term really up to the task. And I mean, she she talked more than any other justice. She made public appearances. Um, She wrote forceful dissents. I'm just curious what stuck out to you from her first term.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, as you mentioned, um, she had no adjustment issues. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson came out asking tough questions in her very first oral argument. She brought new perspectives to the Supreme Court. Uh, For instance, uh, right in one of the early voting rights cases, the one out of Alabama, she asked a question highlighting the originalist case for race consciousness in government policies. Um, something that we really hadn't seen the liberals talk about. Uh, So she was willing to dive into the originalist methodology that's preferred by her conservative colleagues to try to make a case for more progressive outcomes. And I thought that was uh, particularly interesting. She's clearly a liberal, um, but doesn't vote in lockstep with uh, Sonia Sotomayor or Elena Kagan, Uh, One thing that strikes me is that she seems to be somewhat different in some of her outcomes than Justice Breyer was, the person who she replaced on the Supreme Court, in particular on criminal defendants' rights. Justice Breyer tended to defer to the government when it came to criminal defendant matters, um, whereas Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, was much more likely, it seemed, at least in one term, uh, you know, not, not very many observations to rely on, but at least in those that we saw, more likely to side with criminal defendants and the little guy against the government, highlighting, this is highlighted by the Jones versus Hendricks dissent that she wrote. I don't think we would have seen that come necessarily from Justice Breyer.
0: Hmm. So uh, just to bring this full circle, you talked at the top about how it was somewhat surprising to see such a blockbuster term following another real blockbuster from the court. What about next term? We do have some cases that the court has agreed to hear. Do you think it's shaping up to have the same kind of major rulings that we've seen over the past two terms? I think so,
2: although, of course, the court's docket has yet to be filled out. So there's still much to be determined. But the court, for instance, has taken a very big case in an area that I spend a lot of time studying, which is the Second Amendment law. The court took a case out of the Fifth Circuit on whether domestic abusers under a restraining order can be prohibited. Prohibited from possessing firearms. That looks like it's going to be another blockbuster case. On the Second Amendment. The Court has uh, accepted a case on the Securities and Exchange Commission and uh, how it judges, its administrative law judges um, uh, issue civil fines. That could lead to a, a vast rewriting of the Securities and Exchange Commission. There's some other cases that are uh, on the docket uh, dealing with issues of uh, chevron deference, administrative agency deference, um, but uh, there's certainly many more things for the court to do do and to fill out. And I expect, given what we saw this year, that the court is not going to be hesitant to take their cases. Uh, It does seem like there's at least a block of justices on the Supreme Court that view this as a promising time for the court to take these big cases um, because uh, there is a view that a whole bunch of areas of law that are um, the doctrine is wrongly decided and need to be rewritten.
0: Well, as somebody who has been a lot busier over the last two terms, that was not the right answer. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. You know, if you're looking for hope from the
1: Supreme Court, uh, you may be looking in the wrong place. We won't be having a quiet term, I think, for quite a while. But um, well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us again. That was UCLA law professor Adam Winkler. Um, Always appreciate you joining us on the show uh, to talk about the court. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, Kimberly, I think that does it
1: for this
0: term. Yeah, Lydia, was there was there something that stuck out to you about the term that we didn't talk about?
1: Only that, you know, we covered uh, Justice Jackson and uh, Justice Gorsuch seemed to have struck up this really uh, unique alliance there. And so I'm interested to see if that holds true for in in the next term.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised that all term long we were talking about um, the length of oral arguments and then opinions started coming out. And, you know, we didn't we didn't still continue to hammer them on. Five hours. Five hours of arguments. For of the arguments. Case, <laughs> I think we should go back.
1: <laughs> I'm wondering if we'll be stuck in that. All I can say is that I really hope they
0: uh, start keeping the cafeteria open longer if they're going to keep going longer because I'm hungry. <laughs> so, Justice Jackson, as leader of the cafeteria committee, if you're listening to this. We need extended hours if you guys are going to go past (laughs) (laughs) 2 (laughs) o'clock. But that is going to do it uh, for this season of Cases and Controversies. We will be back in the summer if there's news from the court, which, uh, cross our fingers, there will not be. Uh, Otherwise, we'll see you in September ahead of the long conference. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here.
3: My executive order calls on the FTC ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses.
1: Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative.
3: We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit.
1: I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this?
3: And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat.
1: I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules and you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry.
3: Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule?
1: Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition.
2: There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition.
1: Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets.
3: Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.